would, to stand to your feet one last time in the honor of the reading of the Word of God. Our text today, uh, we do have for you here on the screen, if you'd like to read yourself, it's John chapter 2. Today our text, we will not be looking specifically at the event of the resurrection, but rather the foretelling of it by Jesus at the very start of His ministry in John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 through 22. John chapter 2, verse 14. The Bible says that He, being Jesus, found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When He had made a whip of cords, He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And He said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make My Father's house a house of merchandise. Then His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten Me up. So the Jews answered and said to Him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking of the temple of His body. Therefore, when He had risen from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the Word which Jesus had said. Father, this morning we are honored to come together to worship You, the one true living God. Father, we are thankful for the resurrection, Lord. We are thankful, God, for Your Son, Lord. God, I pray right now that You would help me to preach. I acknowledge before this people, God, there's nothing in and of myself that we need. God, we do not need a well-crafted sermon this morning. We do not need a three-point message, Father, that makes sense to us that we can simply walk away with. And God, we certainly do not need just another service. But God, we need You to have Your way. And Lord, we admit we don't even know exactly what that is, Lord. We just ask You to do it, Lord. God, to speak to hearts this morning. I do ask that You touch me and anoint me to preach, not in man's wisdom, not out of my head, not even out of my heart, but God, in the power and the demonstration of the Holy Spirit of God. We pray that You would save sinners this morning. God, that You would set saints free from the chains and the sins and the weights that beset us and keep us, God, from running the race that You've set before us. And God, we'll be careful to give You and You only the praise and the honor and the glory for You alone are worthy of it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In John chapter 2, we have the beginning of Jesus' ministry on earth. He lived for some 30 years in obscurity in a remote part of the earth. It's an interesting thought to think that He was the Son of God that entire time span of earth from the very moment He was born or from the very moment He was placed, if you will, in the womb of His mother. He was the spotless Lamb of God, the Son of God before the foundations of the world. And yet for 30 years, 
He lived in obscurity. And in John chapter 2, His ministry begins. And one of the very first things that we do as we read John chapter 2 is we see Jesus cleansing the temple. And He later, when they ask Him, what authority do you have for your actions? What authority do you have for turning over these tables and driving us out of this place, His response was, kill me, and three days later you'll see exactly what authority I have. Now, they did not understand it at the time. They thought He was speaking of that temple that they were standing in, but He was speaking of His body. I will close speaking on the resurrection this morning, but there are a few things I want to point out that I think are important to us in our text. We see the zeal for God, first of all, by Jesus cleansing the temple. The priest of that day had established a lucrative business buying and selling animals to sacrifice. And there is no doubt that the this religious manner of selling these sacrifices for in the Jewish times there there was a uh, there were sacrifices that needed to be done at certain times of the year and and in our dispensation if you will uh, since the cross and the resurrection from the dead and since Jesus finished all of the shadows and the types uh, that that were pointed towards in all of those sacrifices we no longer have to do the sacrifices that the Jews had to do. And many would come from all over parts of of that land. It was appointed that the males came three times a year to Jerusalem for specific feasts. And there were different sacrifices that would take place at different times of the year. And there is no doubt that what started as convenience, so that people could travel to the church, if you will. They could travel to Jerusalem, and then they could purchase there the things needed for the sacrifices demanded of them. What probably started as convenience turned into business. And we we see in, in this picture, Jesus walks into the temple, and He sees what was meant to be holy. He sees what was meant to be sacred. He sees what was originally designed by God, taken and twisted by man. And He sees man and priests that were selfish with self-desires profiting and peddling the business, if you will, of God. Something came over our Lord in almost rage something inside him became furious. And it is a picture that is difficult for us to see as we see Jesus on the cross and we know of His love. and We see the pictures of Him cradling children and pictures of Him with a boy on His knee and pictures of Him healing the sick. But you'll be hard-pressed to find a good picture of Jesus driving people out of the temple. And the reality is, it is a picture of God that most of us do not want to see. It is a side of the Savior that most of us do not want to believe even exists. But can I tell you, our Lord 
hates sin. We're going to look, and I'll, I'll, I'll probably make this comment again later. It's important to understand as we examine His rage and the turning over of tables, it's not that He hates them. It's not that He hates us. It's that He hates the things that separate us from the One who made us, from the lover of our soul, from the One who fearfully and wonderfully made you in the womb. God hates the things that separate you from Him. And in the very place that people should come to be drawing near to God, man had got in the way and man had messed it up and man was actually keeping people from Him. It's an an ironic thought. And Jesus comes and He cleanses the temple. In due time, the convenience became business, not ministry. I fear that in many ways we find ourselves in the same scenario in the American church. We are so busy. We are so hurried. That our faithfulness and our zeal for the house of God and our love for God seems to be placed on the shelf. And can I tell you as a pastor, as a minister who's involved in the community and involved with other pastors and what one of the things that seems to be happening in our day and time is there is this shift to try to make church more convenient for you to try to make it look like what you want it to look like to try to make sure that the service never goes over an hour there are many folks and some of you may be here today that you've actually got your alarm set at 1201 and when it goes off you'll make sure church is over and if I'm not done you'll just be on your way out. If we're not careful we'll we'll long for convenience over the move of God. I haven't been doing this a long time but I can tell you in 10 years I found that rarely is God convenient. Rarely does God just switch His schedule and His plan and His ways for me. Rarely is an understatement. I would rather say never. We must be careful not to allow the hunger for convenience to change the necessary way of doing things that God has told us to do them. It's interesting that in the very place where the Jews should have been meeting the Gentiles and telling them about the one true God, instead they were selling them things trying to make a profit. And I tell you, there is a one true God. And I promise you this this morning from the bottom of my heart, if this is the first time you've been at this place, and I'm not saying anything negative about every any other place in this town, there's some great churches and great pastors, But I'm just giving you my word. We're not here to sell you anything. We're not. We believe in the one true living God. And we just want you to know Him. We want you to know about Him. And we want you to be saved through Him and through Him only. That's the only place you'll find salvation. And these Jews who had this opportunity to be witnessing and reaching and sharing the message of the true living God had turned the opportunity to do such into an opportunity to to make for themselves profits. God help us to 
abandon that idea. Help us to turn from any way, in any shape or form that we find ourselves using the things of God, using His church, using His Word, using anything that's of Him to benefit and profit ourselves, for it is about Him and Him alone. It is sad to think that any Gentile who is searching for the truth would not likely find it among the religious merchants in the temple. Anyone seeking the truth would not likely find it in this temple that Jesus had to come and cleanse. I must examine myself and ask God, when people come to this place and when people walk in these doors, if they're honestly searching, can they find the Bible says to seek the Lord while He may be found. And I do know this, God is not hiding from you. God is not a God of hide and seek. You've got to seek Him. Oh, but that God would allow us to be a people that are so sold out and so real and authentic for Him that if indeed you're searching, and only you know this morning, you might just be coming here because it's Easter and it's your one time a year to show up. You might be here this morning because your parents dragged you here. You might be here for some other reason. But friend, I can promise you, if you're seeking the Lord and you're really searching to hear from Him this morning, I have begged Him and I've pled with Him, God, show up and reveal Yourself to us. Let us be a people that you can see the power of God in this place. Let us not become. And God help us. We are people. We can never forget this. We must constantly keep our mind on the Word of God. We must constantly allow His Word to, to shine light in, all, in our hearts and on our darkness. We must constantly be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And never think ourselves above being caught up in that same mess of empty religion. But that we would be an authentic people, not perfect. You're never going to be perfect. There's a big difference between being authentic and walking around living a life of sin that you know is nothing but hypocrisy and then saying, well... It's all under grace. There's a big far cry between the two. Let us be an authentic people. The condition of the temple. It was a vivid picture, an indication of the condition of the nation. The religion was a dull routine. Presided over by worldly-minded men whose main desire was not to teach the truth, but to exercise authority and get rich. I believe, just as was the picture in that day, so too, I believe that the church is always and will always be a gauge for the spiritual condition of God's people. You know, it's important that you're connected with the local church. If you're visiting us this morning, thank you for visiting us. You've got another home church? Get involved in your home church. I can just tell you on the authority of the Word of God that we're commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. 
but to do so all the much more, the Bible says, as you see the day approaching. There is a need in us for fellowship and connection. And there is something about the church coming together. It's not a building. Listen, we, are, we could be meeting outside. That's, that's not the point. It's not about the building. But the reality is it's God's design for us to come together and be connected with one another. And the condition of this group of people, their, their, their religion, it was a vivid picture of, of the emptiness of it. It was dull. It was a simple routine. It was something they just went through because they knew that the great God of heaven and earth demanded it and commanded it. But can I tell you this morning, what God asks of you is a whole lot more than some dull routine. What God asks of you is a whole lot more than simply showing up and filling a pew from time to time and then going about your business during the week and then coming and singing some songs and going through it over and over again. There is a living God who wants a living relationship with you. And it's a whole lot more than a dull religion. I ask you this morning, has your religion become dull? When you examine your heart and you examine your life, is this real to you? Are you going through the motions? God, help us to be a place that aren't simply going through a dull routine. Jesus came to show us that God is not about this at all. And the reality is, when you look at this one of two what I would describe as violent outbursts of our Lord. He does it at the beginning of His ministry and at the end of His ministry. He does the same thing. He drives people out of the temple. These are the two times that we see Him furious, if you will, and it was over the, the hypocrisy that was taking place within the church. Can I just take a time out to tell you this? I just feel compelled to do it. It's not part of my notes. But you know one of the reasons that kept me from church was hypocrites. People that talked about how whole, I mean, they were Christians and, 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 and they were believers. And, but, but then I, I, at school, I saw they were no different. They cussed like everybody else. They did drugs like everybody else. They got hammered at parties like everybody else. They had sex like everybody else. They were just as much a sinner as me. However, they did show up and go through a routine on Sunday. And so somehow, someway, they wanted me to be convinced that they were right with God, that God was pleased with them, that He loved them, that He was deeply involved with them, but that He hated me and that I was going to go to hell for living the same way they were living. Okay. Amen. i got about three of them. That's good. And the day I got saved, I heard a message on this exact text. And it was the first time in my life I saw a God that was fair. It didn't justify my actions. But I realized this. God hates hypocrisy. He hates it. And He cleansed that temple. And for the first time in my life, I saw a God that really hated all sin. Not just mine because I didn't go to church, but all sin. And I realized this, that God's going to judge it all. He was going to judge me. Thank God I found salvation. Thank God I'm cleansed by the blood now. I wasn't then, I'll tell you that much. But I realized He was going to punish me, but He was going to punish everybody that was against Him. It didn't matter if you go through some dull routine. My point is this morning, you've got to be born again. You've got to be changed. 
And this, so Jesus comes into the temple. He cleanses it. He came to show us that this dull routine, it's not what it's about. And when Jesus cleansed the temple, in essence, He declared war on the hypocritical religious leaders of His day. And this declaration of war ultimately led to His death. In fact, it was His zeal for God's house that did eat Him up. Jesus protested, and I want you to notice this, Jesus protested the turning of His Father's house into a market. He did not protest the sacrificial system itself. The problem was that the purpose of the sacrifices, the purpose of what God had set up, was being lost. It had been prostituted. And this morning, if you have been using people that are hypocrites, and there are some, believe it or not, and if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves at days and times being hypocrites ourselves. But you listen to me carefully when I say this. If you're using hypocrites as your excuse for not serving God, number one, that don't have anything to do with you and God. And number two, the same freedom that God gives you to choose your own choices, He gives the hypocrites too. It's not God's fault that people act the way people act. And God will deal with it. But don't allow what people do to keep you from God. And don't allow the reality that there's mud in the water, if you will, to keep you from seeing the one true living God. This is one of the techniques of the devil. This is one of the techniques of the enemy to keep people from really surrendering to God. To say, well, look at so-and-so. They go to church and you know about this and that. What's that have to do with God? Jesus didn't protest the church. He didn't protest God. He didn't throw it all out. What He said was, let's just clean this up and deal with it and deal with it now. Don't, don't hesitate from coming to God. Don't keep, allow people to keep you from Him. Now, I have to move. These men were offended. They were angry with the Lord. Their answer, they said to Him, what sign do you show us since you do these things? And here's what they were saying. What authority do you have to come into our house and tell us how we have to do things? It's interesting, they didn't actually disagree with what He had said. They didn't actually say that what they were doing was right. Their response was not what we're doing is right. Their response was not what you're doing is wrong, Jesus. Their response was, who in the world are you to come into our place and tell us anything? Show us a sign that merits you coming in here. Where is your authority? You see, these men were offended. It's almost as if they thought that God was never going to deal with their sin. It was almost as if they saw themselves as these 
holier than thou, greater than the rest of society. And because they had some religion about them, and because they knew more of the Word than most folks, and because they went through the ceremonial system, it was almost as if somehow, some way, in a psychotic manner, that many folks still find themselves in today, they were thinking to themselves, God is not going to deal with my sin. And when Jesus shows up and He points out the error of their way, they're furious with Him. And unfortunately, the majority of them would eventually become so angry they'd plot to kill Him. Rather than turn and repent, rather than acknowledge what is right and turn from what is wrong, they said, we'll kill the voice of the one who speaks what is right. We'll try to snuff out the light that shines on our darkness. We'll nail Him to a cross. Whatever it takes, we will get rid of this voice that turns over our tables, that exposes our sin, that tells us to turn and repent rather than listen, rather than heed His warning, rather than come when He says, Come unto Me, all you who are heavy labor, who are heavy laden in labor, and I will give you rest. Rather than come to Him, they said, We will snuff Him out. And they begin to plot His death. Now they ask Jesus, this is important, I told you we're ready to move into the resurrection. What authority do you have to be God? Ultimately, though it's not in the text, this is what has been asked. And I'll explain it so that it makes sense. There is no question that the Jewish people were God's special group of people through whom the law came, through whom all the prophets came, through whom the seed of Abraham came. Uh, the Jewish people were God's chosen people. The one, true only, great I am, the living God who parted the Red Sea, fed them with manna from heaven. This living God was their God. And He had proven Himself God time and time and time again. And when Jesus comes in to their house, their temple, which was really not theirs, it was God's, when Jesus comes in and turns over tables, in essence, His very action is saying, I have the authority to deal with you and your sins as God. Because Jesus was the Son of God. And their question is this, and is the question people are still asking Today, and they will until the end of the world. What authority do you have to tell me that you're God? What authority do you have to deal with my sin? Show us a sign to prove it. And Jesus' response was, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it back up. What authority do you have to cleanse? The proof? The resurrection. There have been multitudes of people who have claimed to either be God or to have some special connection with God, to hear from God, to be God's prophet. And many of the fools of our society, though they are educated by man's wisdom, 
though they may have years of college and PhDs to put at the end of their name. They are yet fools who do not recognize that the resurrection of Jesus Christ sets Him apart from every other person that's ever lived that has claimed to either be God or have some type of connection with God. If you want to know who God is, you ask the One who rose from the grave. It is that resurrection that sets our faith apart from every other faith that has ever existed. There is only one true living God and His name is Jesus Christ. We as a people must stand on this. Our God has risen from the grave. He's not just a good man. And it does matter that He rose from the grave. I've heard it been said, if He didn't rise from the grave, He'd still be God. No, He wouldn't. Because the Bible says God is not a man that He should lie. He told us that He would rise from the dead. Therefore, He had to rise from the dead. It is the event in history that proves He is who He said He is. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you know it as a divine fact of history? It's not just something we read in our storybooks. It is a true, living example. It is an account of history witnessed by multitudes of people that literally changed the history of the world as we know it. His resurrection from the dead. He said, that's how you'll know I have the authority to come in here and cleanse this place. Now, I want to ask you this question. What are the tables in your life that need turned over? What are the tables in your life that need to be turned over? I don't have the authority to turn them over. This church don't have the authority. But I can promise you this morning, if God will move in this place, He'll deal with tables in your life that need turned over. And sometimes it's kind of violent. Sometimes it's not easy. When God says, I'm just going to reach into your heart and I'm going to break this and I'm going to deal with it now. This stops today. What are the tables in your life? You see, we learn now from the New Testament that Jesus did away with the old sacrificial way. And that now we have become the temple of the living God. This body is now the temple of the living God for those of us who are saved, for those of us who are blood-bought, born-again Christians. The Holy Spirit lives in this body. And as a temple, God has to turn tables over. He's got to cleanse things and push things out of your life. And can I tell you this morning, He has the authority to do so. A couple closing thoughts, and I'm done. I thought it was interesting that Jesus said, destroy this temple and in the three days I will rise it up, raise it up. Notice that it's man who destroys, but it's God that raises up. It is man that tears it down. It is man that kills. It is man that destroys, but God's the one that raises it up. 
Ever since the beginning of the fall, when Adam and Eve said, God, rather than trust you and rather than believe you, we're going to just kind of test it ourselves and see if you're really worth trusting. And they did the very thing that God told them not to do. From that moment on, we men and women have been destroying this world. And we sure do know how to mess it up. That's our specialty. Adam began to walk away from everything that was God's will for his life. God had a perfect plan. God has, And listen, friend, God has a perfect plan for your life. And Adam began to walk away from it. He turned his back on it and he went his own way. And from that moment on, he brought death on himself. Death into this world. And the world from that moment forward as we each passing day is continuing to crumble and crumble and crumble. Satan destroys and so do we, but God raises up. It has been asked, and I must admit it is not an easy question to answer, but it has been asked that if God is real and if God is just and if God is loving, then how can so much of these monstrosities happen that are taking place in the world? And How about suffering children and people starving to death and people being murdered and all the wickedness that you see in the world? And we look at it and some will say, where is God in the midst of all this wickedness? Can I submit to you today, That man destroys, but God raises up. God does have an answer. God has an answer to your brokenness. God has an answer to this broken world. God has a plan to fix what was undone. God is the one that raises up. He can fix your broken heart. He can fix your broken marriage. He can fix your broken life this morning. There is nothing that God cannot do. Oh, but we cannot look to the the terrible things that take place and, and put them on God's shoulders. They're not His fault. They're our fault. And God in His mercy and His grace has not yet said, and you underline the word yet, but He has not yet said, no more, and I will destroy it all, and the earth will be dissolved with a fervent heat and a fire and all that is in it, and those that are lost to everlasting destruction with Satan and his demons. But that day is coming. But in His mercy, He is patient, not willing that any should perish. And I sense this very morning there are people here listening to me preach that God is yet reaching out a hand and He is saying, daughter, He is saying, son, don't run from me. Don't go that way of destruction. Don't live that way anymore. Let me turn over the tables in your life and drive the sin out. Come to me and you'll find repentance and forgiveness. This morning, it is man that destroys It is Satan that destroys, but it's God that raises up. There is no greater example of our ability as depraved and wicked people. There is no greater example of the horror we're capable of than the offense of the cross. We took a man who was blameless for 33 years who refused to speak evil of anyone, who when mocked and beaten and bruised, refused to lash out against his oppressors, who just before they took the spikes and nailed them through his hands and his feet, looked at his captors 
as they were driving the nails through Him. And then looked up to heaven and cried out, God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How do we take a man like this and nail him to a cross? How do we strip him naked of his garments and hang him up in the air for all the world to see what happens when you follow this man? There's only one answer, and that is that we are destroyers. We are a wicked people in need of a Savior. But here's the hopeful part this morning. And it's an amazing thing to think because there are billions upon billions of people. And there are billions upon billions of sins and horrors that we have all committed, that we are all guilty of, that are destructive at their core. And yet there's only one God that we fight against. And somehow this one God is more powerful. His goodness, His greatness is more powerful than all of our wickedness combined. And Jesus said, you destroy it. And I'll raise it back up. This morning, in closing, I want to give you this thought. You know, maybe you haven't really surrendered to God because you've got this lie in your head of what Christianity is supposed to look like. And you think it's just a bunch of people who put on suits and act like they're real holy on one day and then they live like everybody else throughout the week. Good news. There are some folks like that, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is a living relationship with a living God who rose from the grave to prove Himself to you that will live in your heart, change you from the inside out. It's about you and Him. It's not about you and me. It's not even about you and the church. It's about you and Him. But maybe you're allowing people and circumstances to keep you from Him. I want to share with you the last thing that really tried to keep me from God. Talk about man destroys and God raises up. During the last four to five years of my high school, it would be fair to say that the dignitaries of our society, and I don't say that in a condescending way, but they looked at a man like me and they said, you've become worthless. You're really good for nothing except the prison system. I was a thief, and I'm not proud of that. I am a convicted felon, and I'm not proud of that. I was a drug addict who began to use needles. My life spiraled out of control. I drank regularly to the point of blacking out and laying around in my own vomit. It is so embarrassing for me to say that. But it's true. And I say that this morning because there came a point in my life when I began to agree with them. Yep, you are worthless. And your life has gone so far and you've gone so far this direction you could never, ever be right with God. You've gone too far. You see, man destroys, but God raises up. And when the devil and the world and myself 
all agreed, this boy has gone too far. He spiraled so far out of control. He's gone so far that direction. He'll never, he could never be anything of value to this society. He could never be of anything of value to himself. It was one morning laying in my bed at 6 o'clock in the morning. I couldn't sleep. I'd been up all night long. And all I could think of is I want to die. And I finally became convinced I was worthless. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was going to kill myself. And I don't know if you've ever... I, I, I guarantee there's people here that have been there. I really didn't want to kill myself. It's just that I didn't want to live anymore. It's not that I even wanted to die. It was just that if this is life, then maybe death is better. I don't want to do this anymore. And I begin to think, what if? What if those church people are right? What if there really is a God? And when I kill myself, I've got to stand before Him. Well, that was kind of a terrifying thought. I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to make sure there is no God. I'm just going to make sure that He's not real. And once I know for sure that I know that I know that I know, it's just stories and fables. Then, I'll either kill myself or I'll just go crazy until somebody kills me. And at 20 years old, I knelt down and I prayed one of the most arrogant prayers that anybody could pray. And I said, God, if you're even real and if you can even hear, I'm giving you 30 days to show me that you're real. You see, I came to a stage in my life I didn't care what anybody thought. I didn't care what my friends thought anymore. I didn't care what my family thought. I didn't care what my girlfriend thought. I had to know. Is God real or not? Because if He is, there's really nothing else in this world that matters as much as me and Him and me being right with Him. Nothing matters. I had to know. And I began seeking Him. And I began going to church. And you know the reality is the first couple of places I went, people knew me. And I was a convicted felon, and I was a bad person, and I was a criminal. But I was honestly seeking. Oh, and thank God that those who seek Him find Him. But I was seeking. And I would walk in the doors. And some of those friends I told you about that were holy on Sunday and party with me on the week, they saw me and all of a sudden it was like, oh, please don't sit over here and don't let my parents know that we know each other. Stay in the back. I thought, I don't even believe in God, but I believe in Him a little bit more than these people do. Three weeks later, I went to a church much like the one you're sitting in. And I came in and I watched the people worship, and the first thing I thought was, whoa, this is a little weird. Either this is a cult or these people are crazy, but most of these people are really happy for real. Hey, and I'll be honest, it was weird. Because it wasn't religious. It was real, and I'd never seen something real. And I left, and I I didn't get saved that day. And I did think to myself, man, these people are kind of weird. 
but I liked them. At least they weren't judging me. At least they were authentic. There was something about them. Even though I thought it was a little strange, a little weird. I said, I've got to go back and see what these guys are all about. And I went back the next week and I watched a man preach the same text. And I saw a God that was fair with sin. But nonetheless, a God that was going to judge sin. And sitting in the very front row, I heard God speak to me, not in the audible voice, but in that still small voice of your spirit. You asked me to show myself to you. Here I am. But now you've got to come. And I knelt and I prayed. Two words. I'm sorry. That's all I could get out. I probably said it 50 times. My heart had become so cold by everything I'd experienced during that three-year period. I didn't know what it was to cry anymore. But I cried so hard that day. Everything. Jesus came in. He said, this table, and He turned it over. This table, He turned it over. He said, I've got a plan for your life, son. And where you see nothing worth the value, where you see something that society has no use for, I see someone that's going to be a man of God. I see somebody that's eventually going to be a preacher and is going to be telling people there's a true living God that changes lives and hearts forever. And I, I share that with you today for one purpose. I'll ask our worship team to come. And that is this. Here's the reason I share that with you. I don't know how torn up your life is. I don't know what you're facing. But God can raise it up. It doesn't matter how bad you've made. You know, most of the time, the reality, we, we, we love to blame people, but the reality is most of the time the fault lays with us. My life was in shambles, not because of my upbringing, not because I didn't have the right people in society to push me the right direction. My life was in shambles because of me following the unselfish dictates of my heart. But no matter how broken it is, God raises up. God fixes what seems unfixable. And I see people and I talk to people that try to explain to me how everything's so messed up, God can never change it. And I think, how could we have faith to believe that God could take nothing, absolutely nothing, and build and speak this earth and life into existence from nothing. And yet He can't take the broken pieces of your life and fix what needs fixed. It's a lie from the devil, friend. Have you ever wondered if He's God? Just look at the empty tomb because it says it all. He's not on the cross anymore. And He's not in the tomb anymore. And He is coming back. Are you ready for it? Father, we love You this morning. We thank You. God, that You're able to take what we destroy and raise it back up. And God, that You did it with Yourself. That You did it for us. And God, on this Easter, we celebrate You. We thank You, Lord. We worship You. That we found new life in You.